as Paul writes a letter to the Roman believers, just want to remind you, in case you're joining us, it might be, we're kind of, you're coming in the middle of a book, and I just want to remind you here that Paul, back in Romans chapter 1, he kind of gave us the thesis statement, or for the reason, the reason that he's writing this, this book, and he told us that he's not ashamed of the gospel. In verse 16, chapter 1 of Romans, he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, that is, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So Paul has spent all of the chapters to this point, you know, uh, two, three, four, five, six, and seven, really cementing or establishing that thesis statement. He's kind of set, telling you why he's not ashamed of the gospel. And, and he goes through a number of things that we really don't have time to review this morning. But if, if you're just joining, joining us, I would, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the previous studies as we travel through all that. And you'll kind of see how it all fits together. Now, in this early church in Rome, there was... There was really two groups of believers. There were people who of, who of Jewish descent or Jewish heritage who are now coming to Christ. And, and with that, they're bringing all of their previous life and all, their, all the legalism and all the law that, they, that they've grown up under. They're bringing that with them. There's also the Gentile believers. And those are the people who aren't Jewish and who maybe they grew up worshiping false gods or idols or, or whatever they grew up worshiping. You know, they're coming to Christ and they're bringing something uh, with them too in the things that they've learned. Uh, and what, what we're going to see is this morning as Paul takes on Romans chapter 7, he's going to ask us, you know, if we know something. And he, and he, wants, to, he wants to kind of focus in on the law. And, and certainly for the Jewish person, he's referring to Mosaic law and for, you know, the Ten Commandments and the law in Leviticus and all of those kinds of things. And then we need to remember, though, as Christians today, you might be tending to think, well, that's not me. I didn't grow up Jewish or I didn't grow up. I don't even know what you're talking. I don't even know what you're talking about Mosaic law. Well, what you could kind of equate it or apply it to our lives today legalism. Think of the term legalism, because no matter what law you're bound to, whether you're Jewish and you're bound to the Mosaic law, or whether you're a Christian and you're bound to some set of standards or some set of laws that you've set up for yourself, you're still bound in legalism and you're trying to find your effectiveness in how well you can do at keeping your law or that standard that you've set up. So kind of think of it that way. So for the Jew, as, he, as they come to Christ in, in Rome, and, and the natural question is going to be arise is, well, what do we do with the law? What do we do with Moses' law? What do we do with the Torah, the first five books of the Bible? Uh, Paul's going to go on and explain that now, picking up in chapter 7, verse 1. He says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Now, clearly, Paul's addressing the Jewish believer here, but he also says something. In chapter 6, we saw three do-you-not-knows. And these are things that Paul's saying, you should know this. You guys should, you should be aware of this. This shouldn't be something new to you. You should know this. And he's, he's, he's validating his argument on the gospel. And he says, don't you know, and look, notice who he's talking to there. He's talking to brethren. He's talking to believers. He's talking to fellow Christians, people who, who, who are following Christ. That's who he's speaking to. He, he says... They're, they're, he, he's telling them, you should know this. Now, legalism in a Christian's life, as I said, are those laws and rules that we tend to heap up for ourselves. They're those things that, do you know, you have some things in your mind that a good Christian should look like. 
There, there are certain things that we want to put in our mind and say, well, if I'm a good Christian, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to pray for three hours a day. Whatever it is in our mind, sometimes we, we heap those things up. And if we follow those rules, then we see ourselves, well, I'm, I'm doing good before the Lord. I'm doing great before the Lord. But if we don't follow those rules, then that's the very thing that kind of that devastates us. It's the kind of thing that sinks us. It's the kind of thing that says, well, I'm not doing so good before the Lord. And Paul wants to talk about that. Paul tells the Jewish believers something that they should know. And he says this, he says, the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. The law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. And that makes sense, right? As long as someone's alive, they're going to be underneath of a law. And I, and I, I want to just show you something here. If you take a look at the at the, at the wording there, it says, or, you did not, or do you not know brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that, the word that comes after that is the, is, is not really there in the Greek. So what Paul's saying is law, meaning, meaning it's a, in a broad sense, law, laws have dominion over a person or a man as long as they live. Now, would you agree with that statement? That as long as we're alive, law has dominion over us. Now, whether you're, you're Hebrew and you're Jewish and the Mosaic law is over top of you, or whether you're American, isn't there laws over top of us? I mean, certainly the laws of the United States, the laws of our state of Maryland, the laws of the county, the, the, laws, of, the laws that, you know, wherever you move somewhere, when you go to school, you have the rules of the school to follow. So what Paul's saying in a broad sense, there's laws over top of all of us as long as we're living. And he's saying law has jurisdiction. I mean, you're underneath of the law as long as you're alive. But when you die... Are you still underneath the law? No. Did you, do you think they would ever prop a dead person up in court and charge them with a crime? It'd be ridiculous. Why would they do something? They're dead. As a matter of fact, most of you guys know, before I became a pastor, I was in law enforcement, and I worked for a number of years as a detective. And one of the ways that, you know, we had certain ways that we could clear cases. You always wanted to clear them by arrest. But occasionally, you would clear a case by death of offender means the person that committed the crime, we have evidence they committed the crime, they've passed away. Crime is now being cleared because the man that committed it is, or the woman that committed it is dead. They're, they're no longer underneath of that. And that's going to be important. Let me just illustrate it to you this way. Let's say that you go out and you get a speeding ticket on the way home from church today. You're going a little too fast. All of a sudden the police pull you over. You hate to see those lights in your, in your rear view mirror. You pull over. There they are. He writes you a ticket. And let's say you got a court date. You're going to, you know, I'm, I've got to go to court or pay the ticket by uh, 30 days. And let's say a week later after that, you pass away. You go to be with the Lord. You pass away. Do you think the court's going to come looking for you? Do you think they're going to have you come to court and want to know why you didn't pay your ticket? Do you think they're going to charge you for it? No, they, they just clear it out. It's done. You're no longer, you've, because you've died, because you're not alive, there's no more breath in your life. We, there's nothing to prosecute. We can't get money out of you. You're dead. That's going to be important. That's what Paul's trying to show us. Let me summarize it for you. Paul's simply saying that as long as you are alive, you are under law. Some sort of law, some kind of law. For the Jew, it was the Mosaic law. For us, it's the laws of our state, of our county, of our city, our city ordinances. Are, you ever built something? You've got building codes you have to worry about. It, there's always some rule or regulation. That's what he's talking about. But as long as you're alive, you're underneath of these things. But the moment you die, you're not underneath of them anymore. You're, you're, you're no longer bound by them. You're no, longer, you're no longer under them. You're free from them. Now, he wants to illustrate it to us, and he wants to tell us a story. So look at verse 2. And you'll see why this all comes into play in just a minute. So he's going to tell us a story. He says, For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, 
she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Now, before I explain this illustration to you, I want to I show you something This is important. It's important when we look at something like this in the Bible that we understand the context in which it's written. Did Paul just suddenly shift gears and start talking about divorce? No, he didn't just go, all right, I'm done with the gospel. I've already supported that. Now I'm going to go in and I'm going to talk about divorce. But he's using a real-life scenario, a real-life situation to illustrate for us, to show us what he's talking about. In our illustration, we have a woman, we have a man, and they're married under the law. As long as they're both alive, they're bound under the law of marriage. Now, what about divorce? Well, in the Jewish culture that Paul's referring to, a woman could not divorce a man. A man could write a certificate of divorce for a woman, but a woman couldn't divorce a man. That woman was bound to that man under law as long as she lived. She had no option, no choice. There was nothing that she could do. Now, whether you agree with that or not, that's just the way that it was back then. And that's, in Paul's point, what he's saying is she was bound underneath of him and she couldn't move. She couldn't leave. If she was to leave him, and go marry another one. She'd still be married to the first man because the, he, there's no certificate of divorce there. And if she was to get remarried, she would be committing adultery. And Paul's explaining that to us. The law does not go away when he dies, right? In other words, in our, in our scenario, let's say, let's say the husband dies. Now she's free to remarry. It doesn't mean that the law or the certificate or the, or the, or the commitment between them leaves. It's, it's still there, but because he's now dead, there's nothing, it, it's, he, she's released from it. Does that make sense? So just like if you were to, you know, like I said, get a speeding ticket and you were to pass away, then you're released. There, there's nothing there. there this, the speeding ticket's still there. It, it's still in existence, but it means nothing. It, it's, it's not there. You're, you're released from that. So in our, in our situation... The law remains in place, but she's now released from the law. So the wife represents us, the Jewish believer, okay? She's the one that's married to this guy. We're married, Jewish believers were married, they were married to the law. In other words, they related with the Lord on their righteousness, righteousness based on how well they were keeping the law. Are you doing a good job of keeping the law, or are you doing a bad job at keeping the law? Now all of a sudden, uh, the husband passes away, and now she's free to marry another one. So what Paul's, and, and before you, I don't want to go too deep, but what you're getting, before you get confused, Paul's preparing to tell us this, that the law is not dead, but our flesh is what dies in Christ. In other words, before we come to Christ, we're bound under the law. But when we come to Christ, it's our flesh that dies in Christ, and therefore we're no longer under the law, and we're free to be bound to another one, that other one being Jesus Christ. Now look how Paul explains it in verse 4, and this will all sort of make sense now. If you've been wondering, what's he talking about? Paul says, therefore, therefore, as a result of what I just told you, that's what it means. My brethren, you, now he's speaking to them, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Again, Paul's talking to the believer. He says, my brothers, you you have become dead to the law through Christ. You've become dead to the law. How did we become dead to the law? How did that happen? When did we become dead to the law? Through the body of Christ. You also have become dead to the law. When did this happen? When did this happen? If you were to go back and read with me chapter 6 of Romans, verses 3 through 8, it says this. 
Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly also shall we in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. In the book of Galatians, Paul would put it this way, and I think it's much clearer here. Paul would say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. So, the question becomes, why, what, what's, the net, what's the reason for all this? Why do we need all this? Why did we become dead to the law? Look at verse 4. That you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Jesus didn't die on the cross to deliver us from the law so that we could just stay bound to the law. He didn't die on the cross to deliver us from the law so we could just go on and live any way that we wanted to. Paul addressed that. Should we continue in sin so grace should abound? Certainly not. Jesus died so that we could be divorced from the law, from the rules, from the very thing that created a problem in our life. Now, I want to stop just there just for a moment, and I want to remind you, I'm going to say, I'm going to repeat what I said earlier. For many of us, probably most of us in this room, we weren't raised as Orthodox Jews. And most of us didn't grow up living under the Torah and following the Mosaic laws. Most of us have no problem with working on Sundays and following the other 613 laws. We don't even know what they are, nor could we really care what they are. But what I want to share with you is this also applies to legalism in the Christian's life. It's very, very important that we understand that we don't have to please God by... uh, by doing things for him. We, we, once we get saved, have the opportunity to serve the Lord in good works, but we don't look to, we don't look to find our salvation in our good works. Now, let me see if I can explain it this way. Sometimes in the Christian's life, we want to, or we outline, or you'll hear a message, or you'll hear somebody tell you, this is what I do. I get up at five o'clock in the morning and I read the Bible for two hours and then I pray for an hour and then I go do something in the evening or I I make sure I evangelize every day or I go door knocking once a week to share Christ and and I do and I do this and I do that and they and they list all of these things that that we could if we were to put them under a category this is what a good Christian looks like and we and we try to fit them all there but the problem is we can't keep those If, if that really is in your mind what a good Christian looks like and all of those things are good individually but if that really is the definition of how you're trying to find your rightness before God it's it's going to be skewed because you know what's going to happen you're going to wake up one day and you're going to be sick you're not going to feel like going to witness or you're not going to read your bible because you slept in and something happened the night before you're not going to get your prayer time in or you're not going to get to go knocking on a door this week because something there's something happens and you've defined your rightness before God based on what on these standards that you've set up You see, they're not bad individual standards. They're all good things. And Paul's going to go on to tell us the law is a good thing. But it's what shows us that we fall short. You see, it's not about what we do. It's about who did it. It's about Christ, what Christ has done for us. Look at verse 4 again. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law 
Don't let legalism be the very thing that creeps into your life and, and it's where you find your righteousness from. To the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another. Wouldn't you be willing to agree with me that oftentimes churches are filled with legalism? Wouldn't you be able to look around? Sometimes it's a dress code. Sometimes you have to dress a certain way. They expect you to put on a shirt and a tie. Is it bad to wear a coat and a tie to church? Not at all. There's nothing wrong with it. But it, is it bad if it becomes the very thing that defines somebody's righteousness? And you begin to use that standard to look at somebody else? You, but it can go the other way. You know, our dress, our dress code is, well, we don't have one. It's kind of casual. Dress how you want. But, people, but that can become legalism. Well, I would, never, I would never put on a coat and tie. I, wanna, I wear shorts and t-shirts and flip-flops or whatever. God knows my heart. But then you become legalistic the other way. You see, we, we want to make sure that we're not defining our relationship with the Lord based on how we're living for him. We're defining our relationship with him based on what he's done for us. It's so, so important. Paul says this, Therefore, my brethren, we also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Who are we supposed to be married to? It tells us right there, to him who was raised from the dead. That's Christ. In other words, Christ sets you free from the law, sets you free from legalism so that you could be joined together with him, so that you could serve him, not so you could just do whatever you want. He, he sets you together so you could join with him. Why do we want to do that? What's the purpose? Look what he says, that we should bear fruit to God. You see, oftentimes people think they were set free from their sins just so they wouldn't have to go to hell. But understand that you're forgiven for your sins. And no, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, certainly hell is not in your future. But that's, that, that's the beginning. That's not the end. You know, see, a, a true Christian says, all right, Lord, now what can I do for you? How can I serve you? How can I, you know, teach me? Where, where do you want to plug me in? What, what is it that I want to do? Look what it says, that we should bear fruit to God. And before you start serving, before you start teaching, before you start plugging in somewhere, there should be this fruit in your life. And notice what it says, you should bear fruit to God. What does the fruit of God look like in a person's life? Galatians 5.22. Turn there. Galatians 5.22. Keep your finger here. We'll be back to Romans. This is, the fruit of, this is the fruit that we should be bearing in our life. What is it that a believer should look like if he's bearing fruit to God? Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. You see, it's not you that crucifies your flesh. It's in Christ your flesh is crucified. These are the things, these are the byproducts that should be happening in a believer's life. Before I was following the Lord, there wasn't a whole lot of love in my life. There wasn't a lot of joy, there wasn't a lot of peace, and there was certainly no long-suffering, because my, my fuse was about that long. And I certainly wasn't going to put up with much nonsense very long. Kindness, if it benefited me. Goodness, only if it worked out for me. Gentleness, self-control, there was none of that stuff. But when someone comes to the Lord, you should start to see these fruits blossoming and blooming in somebody's life. It's not going to happen overnight. A fruit tree starts small and grows up big. The first couple of years of a fruit tree, how much fruit does it really produce? Just a little bit. 
It usually gets eaten by a squirrel or something or a bird. It's just a little bit. But as it grows a little bigger and you take care of it and you tender and you make, and you make sure it's watered and you make sure it's fertilized with the, with the word of God and that's the same way with your life, you'll bear a little bit more fruit. And bear, when, you, when you look at the big, huge tree that's full of fruit, it didn't start that way. It started just bearing a little bit of fruit. And this is what Paul's saying. As a believer, we're set free from the legalism. We no longer have to spend our life toiling to try to do exactly these, these 613 laws or these 10 steps or whatever you've put in front of me to make me a good Christian. I now have the ability to just walk with the Lord and the Lord's going to produce these fruits in us. You can't produce them yourself. They happen naturally. You can't, you can't make your fruit tree bear fruit. You can't hit it with a bat and make it bear more apples. It doesn't work that way. It happens, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, your, your apple tree's not out there striving to bear fruit. You ever hear your apple tree grunting in the middle of the night? I gotta bear more fruit. <laughs> it doesn't happen. It just, it, it's, if it's fed, if it's watered, if it's fertilized, it happens, it bears fruit. It's the same thing in the life of the believer. Now, go back to Romans, verse 5. Paul's gonna tell us why. Verse 5. Romans chapter 7, verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, that's before we were saved, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit unto death. Different kind of fruit. When we were in the flesh, it's before our flesh was crucified in Christ. During this time, our sinful passions, our sinful desires were at work in our members, and it was going to bear fruit unto death. Look at verse 6. But now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. In other words, what he's saying is in Christ we're delivered from the law. The very thing that held us in bondage is no longer holding us. As a believer, you're not under the law. You can serve the Lord in the newness of spirit is what he's saying. In other words, focusing on what the Lord would call you to do. One commentator said this, Believers are through with the law. It's not an option as a way of salvation. They do not seek to be right with God by obeying some form of law as the supporters of almost all other religions have done or still do. You see, as a believer, we don't seek to be right before God based on what we're doing. We should be doing things for God based on what he's done. You can, do you understand? It's, 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 a, it's a faith-based salvation is what Paul's, Paul's teaching here. It's not a works-based salvation. But Paul would also, he's not going to say, well, there should be no works in a believer's life. He already addressed that in previous chapters. Well, if, if it's just faith-based and all I have to do is have faith, I can live any way that I want. Paul said, no, absolutely not. You don't, you don't, you don't understand it. And then the believer would say, well, what about the laws? What about the rules? They're all good things. In a believer's life, Bible study, you know, sharing the gospel, all those things you mentioned, Rob, those are all good things. Are you saying I shouldn't do them? I'm saying you shouldn't look to them for your right standing before God. You should look to your, who you are in Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 7. Oh, before we go, we're free so we can be married to Jesus so that we can bear fruit to God. We're free from the law and now able to walk in the spirit, which wasn't available to us before, allowing the Holy Spirit to be the one who leads and guides us in our relationships, our worship, and our prayer with the Lord. And the Holy Spirit will never lead you in contradiction to what God's word says. Now, verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? In other words, Paul's saying, Rob, you've painted the law as this horrible picture. This sounds terrible. Why are you, is, is it, is, so the law must be sinful. Paul says, certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have even known sin, or I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. 
So, Paul, what you're saying, that if, if we're not supposed to be legalistic, if we're not supposed to be living under the law, all of those things, are they sinful? And Paul says, no, God forbid, they're not sinful at all. They're teaching us something. Paul says, they're showing, it's showing me something. He says, but, but, but I think he understands how someone, if you've spent your whole life following that kind of religion or following you know, Judaism underneath of that Mosaic law or even a Christian trying to, trying to achieve things for God, trying to live to a certain standard, you can understand why you would say, you would even kind of get pushed back a little bit and say, well, good works are necessary. It's something that we, that we have to have. It's something that we should do. And Paul's saying, listen, it's, it's, it's not, that's not the case. Keeping the law, is, is, it's, it's good, it's not sinful, but there's a reason for it. Paul says the law is not sinful. He says it's the very thing that shows us what we do wrong. It's the standard. How do you know when you're speeding? Hopefully you find out before the cop pulls you over. The speedometer. You look at your speedometer and it says, look how fast I'm going. And you look up at the speed limit and go, uh-oh. Or you look at your speedometer and go, oh, I, got, I can speed up a little bit. I can get there a little quicker. The, the, the speed limit which is the law, tells me where I stand in relation to that. And that's what Paul's saying. Paul, that's what Paul's saying. He give, ha, Paul says, I didn't even know it was wrong to covet until the law said it's wrong to covet. Paul, I didn't, I, that, it, it defined right and wrong for me. And we, we would think that's a good thing. If defining right and wrong is good, then I, then I'm, I always know where I stand. But what Paul's going to show us is that every time he tried, he fell short. No matter how much he wanted to keep the law, he couldn't keep the law. No matter what, it was, right and wrong was clear but he still fell short time after time after time again. Look what he says in verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. Now commandment, you can, you can use it as a synonym for law there. When there was no law, there was no sin. Is there, is there any rule against speeding on the Autobahn in Germany? In certain places, there's no speed limit. So you can go as fast as you would like to go. It, it's, it's okay. There's no law. But it's, can you do that out on 68 here going through Cumberland? No, you're probably going to get pulled over and get a ticket because the law. And what Paul's saying is before the law came, I didn't even, I wasn't, there wasn't sin. It wasn't wrong. If they were to, you know, if you go back to before speed limits were made up, you could go as fast as you wanted. And it wasn't against the law. There's nothing that they could charge you with. And uh, so Paul's given us an example there. Now, uh, aren't we naturally inclined to do something when someone tells us not to? I mean, if I was to say, don't look back, whatever you do, don't look at that door behind you. Don't you just want to turn around and look and say, what's he looking at? What's back there? You know, there's this idea that we, nat so what Paul's saying is when they put the law in place, it also entices you to do things that you might have never thought of, simply because they said, don't do that. If I were to say, don't do this, you might go, well, I wonder why he doesn't want me to do it. Maybe it's fun. Maybe, maybe I'm missing out. Maybe I should try it. You see, the law will show us things that we never would have thought of, and it'll produce evil desires within us. That's what Paul's telling us here. Now, I ran across this illustration. I thought it was pretty funny. Down in Texas, maybe you guys know this or heard of it, there's a motel called, or there was a motel called the Flagship Motel. And uh, out, out in the ocean, in the Gulf of Mexico, they had built a pier, you know, those piers that go out in the ocean, and they built this hotel on the pier. So it was, it was this, I think it was about a six-story hotel. It was built out over the water. So literally, if you jumped off your balcony, you were jumping into, into the ocean there, into the Gulf of Mexico. And they had a problem there because what would happen is these people would rent these rooms, and you could sit down on the first floor of the dining room and, and enjoy a nice dinner looking out over the water. But then when you went to the higher floors, they were, they were rooms, and, and people were renting these rooms. And you know what they were doing off their balconies? Fishing. They were trying to fish. 
So they would put their, their hook on and they would put their weight on and they would, from six stories up, try to cast their line out into the water. And you know what would happen? That big weight would then come flinging back and break the windows at the dining room. And those windows were about $600 a piece. And of course, I'm sure they charged the guests for it and everything else, but it was a common problem. They couldn't get people to stop fishing off the balconies because they would go up to their rooms and it was a great place. I want to try it. I want to put my line in. And they eventually solved the problem. Do you know how they solved the problem? They took away the no fishing signs. All of the rooms had no fishing from the balcony signs. So what it is is when they took those signs out. So the people didn't have the idea of fishing until they saw the no fishing sign. So when the no fishing sign was in there, I'm going to give that a shot. Maybe I, I I can try something from up here. And once the hotel realized, after they went through so many windows, they said, we can take away these signs, they, people didn't have the idea. And that's what Paul's saying here, is the law will give you ideas that you didn't have before. And that's what he's saying with him in, in, in his life, is that's exactly what he's talking about. When, when you're told not to do something, when you tell people don't do something, it causes them to want to do it. It causes them to want to, maybe they weren't even thinking about it. The weakness of the law, though, isn't the law. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with the people. The problem is with the people that were casting their fishing poles. It wasn't that the the rule was no fishing. It was the problem was with them. Even in something good like the law, our evil hearts will will find something wicked. That's essentially what he's saying here. Think of it this way. The law is supposed to be like an x-ray machine. It shows you where the problem is. If you, go into the, if you break a bone, you hurt your arm, you go into the hospital and you break the bone and put you under the x-ray machine, the doctor takes an x-ray and says, yep, your bone's broken. He shows you where it's broken on the x-ray. The x-ray machine is just revealing the problem to you. The x-ray machine didn't cause the problem. It's just showing you the problem. And Paul's saying this is what the law does in our life. It shows us where the problems are in our life. And if you, even, even going back to our example of legalism in Christianity, if you were to mount up for yourself 10 things that every good Christian does, it's going to show you very quickly where, where the problems are in your life. Because you know what you're going to find? That you don't do the very 10 things you thought of. You might only do two of them, or three of them, or eight of them, or you might do them for a few days, and, not, and then by the rest of the end of the week, you forgot about it. And, and that, that's, that's exactly what Paul's saying here. In other words, the idea of sin was in man's heart long before the law came into place. The law just defined it for him and made it clear what's sin and what's not sin. Look at verse 9. Paul says, I was alive once without the law. In other words, when I was a kid, I didn't, when I, before I knew the law, it didn't bother me. But when the commandment came, when the law came, sin revived and I died. I was alive once without the law. Children can be innocent before they know or understand what the law requires. This is what Paul refers to when he says, I was alive once without the law. But once you realize something, once you list those 10 things that every good Christian does, guess what? Now you've got to keep them. And if you've got to keep them, guess what that's going to do with your life? If you're a people pleaser person, you will constantly find yourself trying to please everybody around you. You want to please your mom and your dad or your, your spouse or whoever, whoever it is that's important in your life. You'll, you'll constantly be doing everything that you can possibly do to please them. I would encourage you, if that's your heart and you always find like, everybody's disappointed with me, I'm never, focus on pleasing the Lord. If you'll please the Lord, everybody else will fall into line. If you will do what, if you will be the husband or the wife that God calls you to be and you please him in that, your husband or wife will be proud, will be, you'll be exactly what they need. When it comes to being a child, same thing. Kids, please the Lord. Don't please your parents. Uh, please, what does God want you to do? How does God want you to live? Don't look at how mom and dad are living and think they've got it right. How does God want you to live? What does God want from you in life? 
You know, it, it's be, be a pleaser of the Lord. And Paul says, when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. That means the law shows us our guilt. It excites our rebellion. It, when someone says you can't do something, doesn't it just, who, who are you to tell me I can't do it? I'm going to try it. I'm going to try, I'm going to show you I can't, and you're not even going to catch me. I'm going to do it. You're not even going to know that I did it. Well, God will know. The, uh, verse 10, the commandment, which was to bring life, Paul says, I found to bring death. Paul says the very law, these are the 613 things in Jewish history, the Jewish law that you must do to follow God. It would seem so simple. These just, you just do these 613 things. Man, that's a law, doesn't it? All right, let's just go to the Ten Commandments. You just keep these Ten Commandments, and, and, you, and you will be righteous before God. You'll be completely righteous. Well, the first one is to love your Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your strength. How you doing? I don't know about you, but there's always room for improvement there. So I, I, I fail at the very first one. I, 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 I don't need to, worry, need to worry. Now, there might be a few that I'm doing pretty good. I haven't killed anybody yet. You know? And uh, I know, I know, Matthew, if I've had hatred in my heart, I guess I'm guilty of that too. But the very first one is the law. And, and what Paul's saying is, you think it's easy. You think living a well-defined life with these check marks and these check boxes are going to be good, but it's just the opposite. It shows you what a failure you are. Now, you might be able to look at the person next to you and go, well, I'm doing better than they are. Yeah, but you're still not keeping the law. You're still not doing the very thing that you've put on your own life. And I would challenge you, if you don't believe me in this, go home. Tell me three things that every Christian must do every day, and I want you to do them every day for the rest of your life. And if you fail once, then you fail to keep your own law. And, and you're going to find that it's, it's, go on a diet sometime. See how it works out for you. You know, start exercise. It's the new year. New year's resolutions, right? Start all over again. See how long they last. Hopefully they'll, hopefully they'll last for you. But as people, they tend not to. In other words, Paul's saying, in the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. I thought it would bring me life. I didn't need to wonder about what was right and wrong. I thought it would be so clear. All I have to do is live it. And all I had to do was follow it. It just brings just the opposite. All I do is found out that that's the very thing that I can't do. It's the very thing that I can't keep. How'd the law lead you to death, Paul? Look at verse 11. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me. It deceived, sin deceived me in the law. The law showed me what sin is, but sin deceived me. And by it, killed me. Sin deceived Paul, and it will deceive you and I if we let it. It'll, it'll, it'll falsely promise satisfaction. It'll falsely claim uh, an adequate excuse. There'll always be a, a reason or a justification. And it, it'll, it'll promise an escape from punishment. Oh, you won't get caught. Oh, it won't happen to you. What Paul, and Paul here is referring to his own life. He said, sin deceived me. And Paul would call himself the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was probably one of the best at keeping the law. And all he, in all of his righteousness under the law, all he said was it brought me death. I did the best I could do. I did everything I could do, and all I did was fail. It's not that the law deceives you. It's that sin deceives you. The law is the standard. All that is is the measuring stick. Where do you stand in it? Where do, where do, you, where do you line up? It's the sin that deceives us. It's not the law that kills you. It's the sin that kills you. And if you follow sin, if you continue in sin, it will lead you to death. Remember the last chapter. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. I wrote this down. I thought it was good. One of Satan's greatest deceptions is to get us to think of sin as something good that an unpleasant God wants to deprive us of. When God warns us away from sin, he warns us away from something that will kill us. 
You understand what they just said? What I, what I, one of Satan's greatest deceptions is that God is somehow unpleasant, somehow wants to keep you from having fun, somehow wants to keep you away from something that you would just really enjoy. And you, oh, I'm, I'm going to go enjoy it. I'm going to live that life of sin. And really, God's just trying to keep you away from death. He's trying to keep you away from something that would hurt you, something that's going to harm you, something that's going to pull you away from him. So, Rob, are you sure the law is not bad? The way you've talked about it, look at verse 12. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Paul says the law is not bad. The law is holy. It's established by God. It's just, which means it's fair. It's fair. It's, it's absolutely fair. It, 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 there's, there's no room for, well, I'm going to have a little leniency on you. The law doesn't work that way. The law is fair. It'll tell you right from wrong. It'll tell you where you stand. The law is good, which means it's positive. It's moral. Then what's the problem? We're the problem. You're the problem. I'm the problem. It's not the law. You can write down your 10 list of the top 10 things Christians do. They're probably great. The problem is you. You can't keep them. If you could keep them, you'd be a better person. I don't doubt it for a moment. But what happens is the harder you try to keep them, the farther away you fall because you realize it goes well I blew that one I blew that one well, I might as well blow the rest of them ah, we'll get back to it next year New Year's resolutions you know 2017 is gone let's pick up in 2018 and that's kind of the way that, our, that, that we work this is why as believers that we must not place ourselves underneath of these kinds of laws these, these kinds of rules these kinds of regulations don't make rules for yourself don't make regulations don't make don't have the top three things that you're going to do rob are you saying i shouldn't study the bible no i'm not saying that i'm saying let the holy spirit lead you in what you're doing from day to day let the lord be the one that, some mornings he might wake you up at four o'clock in the morning and want to spend time with you other mornings he might think that you need rest and let you sleep in if you're legalistic guess what you're going to miss the rest or you're going to miss the Bible study because you're too tired from getting up the morning before. Let the Lord be the one that leads you. Let's not be people who are, you know, looking for our righteousness in how, how many steps we're following. Let's, look at, let's be people that say, Lord, what do you want me to do today? I'd love to spend some time with you, Lord. Can you, can you wake me up a little bit earlier? Or can you keep me up? Can you give me a little more energy before I go to bed? I want to read your word. Or, Lord, I'd love to witness to somebody. Will you bring somebody across my path? Watch what he does if you open himself. If you open yourself up to him, and say, you know what, I'm going to walk in the spirit today. I'm not going to fulfill the lust of the flesh. I'm not going to follow my flesh. Lord, what do you want to do with my day today? And then you have to be a little flexible. Because ministry is never convenient. It never is. But then you become a little flexible and he will lead you. And he will show you. And he will take you right in the right places that where, you, where you want to be. You ever got up in the morning and you read a Bible verse or a devotion and then later that day he brings somebody across your path and you repeat that verse that you read to them this morning? Do you know that's not, an, that's not a coincidence? It's because you got up and spent time with the Lord. He said, I'm going to use that in your life later today. Maybe it's through an email. Maybe it's a Facebook. Maybe it's a Twitter. Whatever it is, I'm going to use that in your life because you, you got up to do that. But if your legalism is that, if, if I have to do that every morning, and the mornings that you fail, guess what? Your day's a train wreck for the day. We don't meet God that way. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorites, said this. He said, I founded my own spiritual life that the more rules I lay down for myself, the more sins I commit. Why make the law? The habit of regular morning and evening prayer is one of which is indispensable to a believer's life. But the prescribing of the length of prayer and the constrained remembrance of so many persons and subjects may gender unto bondage, may lead me unto bondage, to strangle prayer rather than assist it. In other words, what he's saying is prayer is a wonderful thing. 
But if it becomes legalistic, if it becomes the burden, I've got to pray so long, I've got to pray, I'm going to be, I'm going to be underneath of these guidelines, I've got to pray for all 437 people in my family, and I've got, to, I've got to pray for, it just becomes this burden. In other words, he's saying, listen, every time I make a law, I find I break it. All I, all I do is the more rules I make, the more sin I have. So what he would say is just serve the Lord. Just, just walk in the Lord day after day. This week, try it sometime. Don't look to, you know, you might miss your morning devotion sometime. It's okay, walk. Go with the Lord. He hasn't left you. He understands. That's where we get our grace and our mercy from. Don't, you and I, we should be people who look to the Lord every day and say, Lord, here I am. I'm your servant. What is it that you want me to do? How can I serve you today? After all, isn't that what a good servant does? How can I serve you? What do you need, Lord? Where, where am I at? Instead of bringing him along with your plans for the day. Take your time and ask him, Lord, what do you want me to do? Let's pray. Father, Lord, sometimes these passages, this passage about law can get kind of, I don't know, Lord, hard to understand. Sometimes it can be hard to apply to our life. But Lord, if we take nothing else away from it, may we understand that we're not bound to you under some law that is created by man or even by the laws of the Old Testament. That we're, we're bound to you through our faith in Jesus Christ. That our old man is dead. We've divorced that part of us, Lord separate and now we're married to another so that you might bear fruit in our life so lord as we read in galatians very quickly what the fruit of the spirit was would we bear that in our life would we be a church and people who those fruits every year are growing more and more or would you just show us teach us Lord, we don't want to bear fruit of the flesh fruit of that leads to death we want to bear fruit that would make you proud, make you worthy, make us worthy. Lord, show us and teach us your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.